and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today, our show features the voices of people involved in Maine's historic sardine industry. I'm excited to introduce my co-host, Camden Hunt, a College of the Atlantic student who I first met a few years ago when he enrolled in one of my classes at College of the Atlantic. The class had taken a field trip down to Lubeck to visit McCurdy Smokehouse, which was the last commercial smokehouse in Maine when it closed in 1991. Camden was quickly hooked on the stories of Maine's fisheries heritage, and since that field trip, he's explored Maine's coastal history through poetry, narrative, archival research, and now audio storytelling. For today's show, Camden quilted together dozens of historical audio clips into a seamless story that traces Maine's iconic sardine industry from sea to can, entirely in the voices of industry members. You'll find yourself transported onto the sardine carriers, into the herring weirs, and working on the line at the sardine plants with the rich smells and sounds of Maine's sardine heritage. Before we hand the mic over to Camden to introduce our stories of Maine's sardine industry, I wanted to take a minute to talk about this week's WERU Pledge Drive. Coastal Conversations has been on air at WERU for about five and a half years, and in that time, we've strived to share information and perspectives that are relevant to you, our listeners, by going in-depth on stories about the coast and the people whose lives revolve around the sea. On our show, we've tended to focus on the local, from mid-coast Maine to the Downeast region, but we also like to put our stories into a wider context to illustrate the global forces that influence day-to-day life here in Maine. And as you'll hear, that's certainly the case with today's sardine story. If you like what you hear on Coastal Conversations and on all the other great programs here on WERU Community Radio, please consider supporting the station during this week's pledge drive. We can't ask you to call in your pledge like usual because COVID has prevented us from having volunteers inside the station to take your calls. But you can pledge online at WERU.org or by mail by sending a check to WERU P.O. Box 170, East Orland, Maine, 04431. Thank you. As for today's show, please note that it was pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls. And now, here's Camden Hunt, incoming junior at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, and my guest co-host and co-producer for this week's Coastal Conversations. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the stories of the sardine industry. Sardines were a fundamental part of Maine culture and economy for over a hundred years. Sardine canneries created jobs for generations of Mainers living near the coast, and cultivated values centered on hard, honest work and community. 
Our show today follows sardines from the smallest silvery herring swimming into a weir to truckloads of sardines being shipped out across the United States. It follows the sardine industry, how it lived, and how it died, from the early 20s all the way to 2010, when Stinson Seafood, the last sardine cannery in Maine, closed down. This show includes voices from the last sardine cannery collection, specifically Clau Genthner, Al West, Leela Anderson, Susan Knight Calder, Murtis Harrington, Diana Young, Willard and Peter Colson, and Arlene and Pete Hartford, as well as a voice from the Maine Coast Oral History Initiative, Robert Dyer. These voices span from Chabig Island to Lubeck, and range in age from 62 to 88 years at the time of interviewing. These interviews were conducted between 2011 and 2013, and focus on the sardine industry from ocean to can. They contain hours of stories edited down for the story you're listening to today. In this first section, you will hear Robert Dyer from Chibig Island, 82 at the time of interviewing, Clau Gintner from Demariscada at 75, Al West from Stuben at 62, Arlene Hartford from Goldsboro at 73, Willard and Peter Colson from Southwest Harbor at 88 and 56, Leela Anderson from Korea at 80, and Murtis Harrington from Stuben, 80 at the time of interviewing. We open with descriptions of fishing for sardines out on the open water, moving into the factory. I'm going to tell you something about sardining. You'd be up three or four days in a row, night and day. You wouldn't lay down. Now, when you would lay down, you lay down on a piece of wood. Any way you could lay down on it and get a nap. Because you're working good at night. So you caught your herring at night. And then you, you take care of them at daylight. Then you'd get them in a the square sand. Then the, then the sardine carrier would come. And then you'd take a smaller sand, a purse rig, and, and take the herring out and put it in the sardine carrier. So uh, we loaded 14 carriers one day. See? So you was up. Well, like that night and the day and that night, we was up. You couldn't even sit down. And uh, so I, I remember that because that, uh, well, one fella, uh, this guy's brother that didn't like him, he was with us and was up Goose Island. And we coming home just the edge of dark. And everywhere you looked, the place was full of sardines. The bay, was, the whole sound was full of sardines. And I said to Charlie, I said, my God, look at the herring. And about that time, that whale went just like that breach right by the stern of the boat. And I know I could have jumped on his back. And scared, boy, I went along getting that engine going and getting over in the shoal water. Boy, now there, I, I stopped the boat, you know, to listen to the herring. And when I did, he, he come out just like that and blowed right in the stern of that boat. Well, sir, now I'm telling you, that scared me. And I, and I got the boat underway, and I headed for... Remember the Shebeg to get to show water, because I tell you that was a big fish, and and uh, you could hear him after we got the island. You could still hear him off there blowing, you know, and, and chasing them herring and out of that big sound. Well, it was a few times that I was a little worried. We uh, had one time down off of uh, we was uh, off of uh, Chatham, down off the Cape, down in towards the Cape there, and it was right glassy calm when we went. It was beautiful, but there was giving a storm that night. No Easter coming. We got a fish, and uh, 
about 10 o'clock or so, it uh, started coming on. And we was loaded, I mean loaded. We uh, got up off of uh, Situate, and she really coming on snow, heavy rain, I mean sleet, snow. Everything froze up. Radar wasn't working. The rans went out. Everything is, I mean, it was just icing up till the seas kept getting bigger and bigger. I uh, took a compass bearing for Gloucester Harbour and uh, figured the time. I mean, it's hard to say because the wind was so strong and everything. We only did about uh, eight knots with the boat anyway. And when she was loaded, we drew that much more water dragging it, probably seven, seven and a half, sometimes six. We was a long steam to get up to off Gloucester Harbor. When I see that light flash once, I said, oh boy, we ain't got too much farther to go. <laughs> you could catch them any way you wanted them, but we didn't have move because we had all we wanted. And and so we caught them right by the boatyard there. And and uh, so uh, we stayed right there, and then some of the other guys caught them either side of us, you know. And about that, that time, there was an awful lot of fish, a lot of fish. And then, because after that, slowly, the old person took over, and then that was it. So, uh, no, I, I, I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun uh, 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 sardining, and a lot of years you'd go sardining for three months, then you'd have to give up and go lobster in the rest of the year to make a living. Because there'd only be one little squirt of fish come in, and then you catch them up, and that was it. And then I'd have to get my boat, my father, and we'd have to go lobster for stay afloat all the rest of the year till the next season. Then the next season you might do good. You might you might have a good year. You don't you never, that's something you never knew about sardining. One year you could say, Oh boy, I'm gonna get rich well you never and then the next year you'd say I'm gonna starve death and you never. So it that's the way fishing business is. Well the middle of May they you start looking for them about the fifteenth of May you start going out at night and, and sailing around see if you could find any. And then uh, June usually was the best month. Really, if you were going to make any money, you made it through the month of June. And then uh, they'd let go, and in September they'd let go, and then October the little ones would show up. Then you'd have a month or a couple of months maybe as them little ones. And then, you know, majority. Now, this was the average. That would, that would be the average. average. Uh, very rarely would you have herring all summer long. You know, there'd be a spell, just like Lopperin. Lopperin can run down like that. It's sardine, it was the same way. And and so, uh, uh, but one year, I remember it was in April, we went outside, we see the herring outside. First day of April, raining cats and dogs. And my father said, yeah, we're going to go in and get our paint, because the herring showed up. It rained every day, all the way, all the way. Well, we never did paint. We went sardine, but we didn't paint. And so you never knew when they were going to strike. I mean, you had to be ready to go, regardless whether you were ready or not. You had to go, and that's that why that uh, uh, some years you, you you'd paint all up, and you wouldn't set a sand. But the first of November, you could you could pretty well figure it's all over. You you know put stuff away. We uh, go out at 
late afternoon into these coves and check them out for uh, sardines. We used an airplane that we could spot. My partner would fly the plane and I'd do all the uh, work with the nets, running the twine out to uh, shut the cove off. We'd start on one shore and go up around and go on another piece of shore to block them so they couldn't get back out. Once you did that, you put anchors on the twine and what you they call pockets. We'd make a, another piece of twine and run it on the outside, square it off and sink the two floats. And come daylight in the morning, the fish would go off into deeper water and they'd go through that hole and you'd pick it up. Then the carriers would come and uh, take and, uh, the fish from us. We would take a little pocket seine, make a circle, and then uh, five of us would uh, drive the fish up and the carrier would be alongside. They'd pump them into the carrier and take them to Prospect, Bath, Belfast, and uh, then they'd process them. Once uh, we got the boat loaded with fish, we'd steam into the plant. We'd get in to tie up. One of the guys would, from the uh, dock, night watchman would come down. It was during, say, 1, 2 o'clock in the morning before the plants even started to open up. They'd start pumping the fish out. They'd have somebody there. They'd bring, put their pump in, and we'd put water in the hole, and they'd pump them from the boat up to the plants and put them in uh, tanks up there and then once we got it all cleaned out the holes cleaned out we would uh, put salt back aboard or put ice aboard be ready to uh, go back out that next night again afternoon that was your traditional old style fish plant the fish were uh, brought in by carrier or boat or truck, um, simply flumed into tanks, and then the fish were flumed out of the tanks to the cutting line where the girls picked them up with, by hand and cut them with scissors and packed them in the, in the cans and then uh, placed the cans on trays and pickup men came around with carts, picked the trays up, punched tags. Uh, the, the trays were rolled into steam boxes, inverted, cooked, uh, very, very old style when I started there. It used to be uh, enjoyable watching them come in and <clears throat> unload the fish, you know. And uh, so it was kind of exciting. We could go down to the wharf and watch them when they unloaded the fish. It was so nice and cool and calm and just, you know, so great. They'd pump fish out of their pockets, so to speak, out there into the boat. The boat would come in, and I'd pump them out of the boat into the factory. Well, I ran the tanks. So the tanks were wooden tanks, and they'd hold about anywhere from a hogshead and a half to three hogshead. So we had a whole series of tanks down there. And they had a wooden sluice with a wooden gate, and you had a rope that would on a pulley that would open and close the gate. So I would... Uh, run the gates to let them in. So the pump from the that pumped the fish out of the sardine carrier would discharge into a long sluice and that would go the whole length of the wharf 
down into the factory to where our, what we called our tank room. And then we'd have the gates for each one of the tanks. So I'd sit up there and run the gates. And uh, during the summertime, you'd have mackerel in the fish. And uh, so I got set up that I would pick the mackerel up because we didn't use those for the sardines. <clears throat> I'd, I'd bundle all of them up and take them to the fish wharf and get 10 cents a pound for them. That's quite a sight to see. All them fish nice and shiny. Mixture of small ones. big, Because when the fish come in a lot of times, if they had too many little ones like that in them, they didn't, they, it wasn't worth picking the larger ones out. They wouldn't do them. There's a lot of, a lot of waste at times. And then when those great big ones come in, it we did. You, I'm going to tell you, you wanted some sharp scissors when you done them. Fish was about that long, about that thick through it, some of them. Two in a can, two to three in a can, big fish. I worked on the cutting fish state, very first job there. Uh, as I progressed, I actually did nearly every job in the plant. And um, when the plant was upgraded with more machinery, the owner decided that uh, they needed a second shift plant manager so by having me do every job in the plant, or nearly every job, I was groomed for the position. I did it all from soup to nuts. I actually learned all the position. I hired all of my employees and trained them and put them to work. And we ran two shifts prior to uh, the Stinson family selling the plant. We ran two shifts for about three or four years. Because when I first started, in the old factory, when I was young, there was no end to hours. We would go home, just time enough to get an hour to sleep and go back on the bus, because they had buses then that carried the packers, and back to work we'd go. Mm -hmm. But see, then later on, when they got the years went on, they had hours, eight hours a day, or if we wanted to work overtime to get them done so we could have longer time off, then we'd finish them up. They only had shifts at one time. That was in the new plant they built. But it didn't last long. They went completely to just one. Mm -hmm. But in the old factory, just everybody worked at the hours that they had. If you had to work 11 hours, you work 11 hours. And you'd go home and have a couple hours sleep and come back and go at it again. But we had we did cooked fish then. But they, they cooked them and they had them on flakes. They had these big, tall, wooden... Oh, looked like a box, and it had shells, and it had flakes, wire flakes that went in, and the fish were laying on them cooked, and they and they had men that would stand there, and and they'd put them on as fast as they could, and as fast as we wanted, when we'd pull it off, the two of us, one on it, the, my partner and me. Then when we get done, we had to flip it over and put it back in, and then haul out another one. And that's the way they done them then. Then you then you dumped your, they dumped your cans. You had a belt that your cans was on. You got your cans, put them down on the thing. Then you put them on. Then you had empty trays over here that held twenty five cans to a tray. You packed the twenty five, and you had to pack four of those to make the case. Four of those trays. Then then they'd have a, someone come pick it up and put it on a cat, take it to the cooker. Then you just kept on, that's how you did them. You built your cases up, and, you, and they punched them as you got a case. Flakes, they called them. And uh, when we get the flake all cleared off, the lady I was packing with, I would forget and set my scissors right on that flake tray. 
and uh, well, we had was chum on there, and we'd have to flip it, and it would go down this chum carrier, and it would chew right up, chew them chum right up. I lost three pairs of scissors that day, and the boss came up and told me, he says, your father says you might just as well go home. You bought <laughs> three pairs of scissors. It was only a dollar pair then. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and my co-production partner today, Camden Hunt, Jr. at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. Our show today traces the voices of the sardine industry from sea to can through archival interviews captured in the early 20-teens. Today's show was pre-recorded, so we'll not be taking any calls today. In this next section, you will hear from Al West from Stuben, 62 at the time of interviewing, Susan Knight Calder from Whiting at 84, Leela Anderson from Korea at 80, Arlene Hartford from Goldsboro at 73, Willard and Peter Colson from Southwest Harbor at 88 and 56, Murtis Harrington from Stuben at 80, and Diana Young from Prospect Harbor. 66 at the time of interviewing. We continue with the process of packing sardines within a cannery into some of the history and culture around the main sardine industry. There's a machine designed by the owner to cut fish steaks, which took the larger herring that uh, really were too large, he felt, to make a sardine out of, and it would cut the fish into steaks. And it was simply a continuous belt with a half a dozen people pulling fish into pockets. The fish would go through circular blades and be cut into fish steaks. Uh, boring job, uh, but it gave me a paycheck. And you'd cut them and, and pack them in. Sometimes we'd have fish that we'd pack four in a can, and sometimes we'd have six or eight or whatever. And then sometimes we'd have snippers, the little fellows, and we'd pick them up and and break the head off with your thumbs and place them in there, in the can. And uh, there was a hundred cans to a case. Cut the heads in the town, we'd have to cut them the lengths of that can, that oval can. That was a great big oval can. And we'd have to cut them the length of that. You, in your, you didn't have no measure or nothing, you just... In your mind, knew just what length they were going to be. You knew just exactly how you was cutting them. It's unbelievable that you could do that, isn't it? You stand there all day long, pack sardines, and you're cutting those fish yourself and judging the length. Uh, I was average. I wasn't what you call a fast, fast packer, and I wasn't a slow packer. I was average. Yeah, I, I did my part. <laughs> I liked it when we used to cut fish with scissors, although I've got quite a few cuts, but I liked it better that way. You snip the heads off or something, you might get your finger instead of with a head or tail. Yeah, very easy. And you have them done up with tape, but you still cut right through. Your scissors are very sharp when you're cutting fish. Yeah, everybody tapes their fingers. It kind of slows it up a little bit, even though it doesn't always... You know, help a lot, but it still slows it up a little bit by getting cut. Oh, we've had some good ones. Because <laughs> everybody had their own rhythm. I used to throw my fish up in the air and catch it and come down and cut the head off. 
and now, for example, a friend of mine at Pat, she just kept hurting and just. But I didn't dare do that because a lot of them cut right through that. And I said, no, no, I'd rather cut my finger off and cut through that part of my hand. So I threw my fish up in the air, and when it come down, I cut. That's why the people, when they come in the factory, the visitors, they always want to come to my table. I said, we've got to see that little girl that flips them fish, toss it up and t- flip it over, and I'd cut the head and tail off. I, and I'd turn it myself. Well, a lot of them didn't turn them. They just took the scissors and went underhanded. I wouldn't do that because I was left-handed. But I I cut the fish from my right hand. I didn't very often, as fast as I was, I didn't very often cut my fingers. But they got some bad cuts. Bad cuts. And when you worked on the flakes in the old days, if somebody on that end of you, your table went like I was on, she was on that end and I was on that end. If she flipped that four I got ready, you could get a, you had your scissors in your hand, you could get a bad cut, bad one. You stand like this, then you had two belts. One was can belt, one was fish belt. And you had the fish, you pulled the fish out onto the table like this. And then you picked the cans off, whatever you want, and cut them and put them in. Then when you got, then you had a hole right here where the chum went down, and that had a belt. And that went right out into the, what they call a tank room. So he had three, actually, three belts. Can belt, chum belt, fish belt. Then when you get that done, you just pull some more fish off. That was the good times. So if you went up to the packing room, the packers are packing the cans. They would take the cans also off and lay them down where they was going to be packing put the fish, cut the fish off and put them into the can. Then they put the can onto a tray, which they had to reach under the table and get. And uh, then what the pickup boy would do, he would come by and every time they got 100 cans, would pick them up, put them onto a cart. And once they got down on trays, he'd also have to take a cart full of empty trays and put them back underneath the tables again. So it was a, it was a cycle. Once the cart got full and it would hold about 11 cases of product, 1,100 cans. Then they would go over to the steam box area, and uh, the the guy would take uh, and put a top on the cart and a strap, and then fasten it down. And then wheel the cart into a steam box, and they'd hold uh, two carts, I believe. And you'd use raw steam to uh, steam the product. And you would steam the cans for about an hour. I forget the temperature, but it was all predetermined. At the end of that hour, you would then cool those cans down, and the, and the way you would shut the retort off is you'd shut the steam off, and then you would have to turn on air compressors and have overriding air pressure as you introduced water back into the retort so that the cans wouldn't implode or explode. And it was, it was a very delicate job. You had to control your air pressure with one hand and your water coming in with the other hand and just watch your gauges and maintain a certain level of pressure in that retort. You couldn't, if you went too low, one thing would happen. If you went too high, something else would happen. So you you very carefully did that. It took about 20 minutes to do what they call bringing down a retort. When you were done, if you were successful, the retort was again full of water. You shut the air off, um, uncap it, 
and let it sit for a while and then you drain the water off and let the cans out of the bottom door onto another belt where they'd go to a cooling bin. Yeah, and then you'd have uh, chili brand. A lot of that was in the southern part of the states. Uh, your, your beach clip brand was all over the country. You'd have oil, mustard, tomato, uh, green chilies with soybean oil. Uh, you'd have some uh, kippers that you'd take out of the... You'd get sliced fillets off the big fish and put those into the can with the, with the smoked uh, oil. And uh, you'd have that brand, all the different different flavors. But uh, the back in the 70s, to put a, a chili pepper in the can, it was all done manually. After the fish were pre-cooked, they'd, we'd take them over to the tables, and the women put a chili pepper in each end of the can. And then they'd have to take those trays and put them back on the cart, take them over to the machine. And then uh, we invented uh, our chili machine, basically, that would a dispenser that would dispense sliced chilies into the can. Uh, we had Neptune was our smaller fish. That was a higher price can. was a Neptune brand. Uh, but we had Beach Cliff. We had Possum that would sell down south. Um, we had Billow. We had Sea Lion. We had uh, Commander. And speaking of jokes, I was... I don't know if it was much of a joke, but they were doing a documentary on bears out west. We was watching it on the news. And they said they'd use uh, sardines to attract the bears to, so they could do the documentary <laughs> on the bears. Jeez, I looked on there, and it was a can of Commander sardines pounded on the tree you know, with a nail. And that's what they are using <laughs> to attract the bears for their documentary. Well, I was six years old in 1929, so I lived through the what they called the Depression. Happiest time of my life. Well, I mean, we weren't exactly what you might call rich. So uh, what we did get during the Depression was appreciated. And uh, I don't think people look at it that way now. The ones that really got hurt were the people that had a lot of money. And all at once they had no money. They were really upset. Some of them jumped out a high window. I stayed on the ground because I was started on the ground. So uh, I hope we don't have another depression. But when we did have the depression, we had the sardine factories and the canning plants were available and that was some work for people. And uh, I've always remembered that. They were very important at that time. They continued to be important. But uh, now we don't have the sardine factories. I think the last one, my son over here, Peter, was the manager of it. And that was the last one in the entire country. Yeah, of course my mother worked there long before I did. It smelled bad. She'd bring, stop at that little store and bring home cookies and stuff, and they'd taste just like, ah. Uh, she didn't have to worry about us eating them up because we didn't like the taste of them. Yes, I remember my mother. She was... Uh, come home sometimes in the middle of the night and sometimes they'd come home early. They wouldn't know if they had one bolt in, it wouldn't take that long. Or... I remember her getting up going, putting the raping on the hat and getting the lunch ready the night before. 
But in the old bedroom, there was a couple that would come over at, uh, like, if we worked at this, at six o'clock was our supper hour at night in the uh, old factory. And there was a couple would bring hot, like, soup and stuff. We'd buy it. It was good. She'd have pies and everything. So that not too bad. Today I wouldn't want to have to do it because they'd probably charge forever, you know. But you could pay it for buy a piece of pie for 50 cents. Now, what is it, $3? <laughs> I know she was very tired. And back then you, uh, back then you had to process cooked fish. So they had to do them up before they come home. And sometimes she'd get home 1 o'clock in the morning. Then turn around and go back to work around six. But now we process fish, you know, don't have them cooked. But yeah, so. but they but now they they do it different because they uh, they can keep them, you know, without having to do them all up. They can put them in a the freezer or a cooler or something. Back in them days, they didn't though. They just they packed whatever they caught that day, brought in. They packed them all before they went home. And then, of course, we were all clean and everything, but we, we, we smelled just like the factory. Didn't mind it a bit, everybody smelled the same. <laughs> well, that was it. You put on clean clothes, but you still, and, and the hair and everything, got ready right in our skin, I think. And uh, didn't mind that a bit, because everybody smelled the same. And so when I came in and started working with Annie Tracy, I was given the uh, job at $1.25 an hour. That was the minimum wage to uh, get me started. Uh, Mr. Stinson Sr. was still here at the time, and every day he came into the office, and he'd walk by me and he'd say, Girlie, how's the job going? And I said, fine, and so forth. And working with his sons, Charlie and Trug, and his son-in-laws, Dick and Dana, it became quite apparent that uh, it was a family much like my own, very diverse, very uh, argumentative, very uh, uh, interested in the surroundings of what was going on and everybody had their own turf, so to speak, and uh, it was fun to watch the different personalities together create what I was very fortunate to be a part of. It was uh, from ground zero uh, to becoming one of the world's largest sardine suppliers and um, brand names known worldwide. So. It was uh, amusing to me that at my young age and offered a raise, Mr. Stinson asked me to come into his office and he sat in his rocking chair with his pipe and rocked and he said, well, he said, um, the boys have um, told me that uh, you're working out well and they recommend that you get a raise. And I said, oh, that's good. He said, do you think you're worth it? 
And I was so taken aback by that because I came from a family that anything that one wanted to do, one did. And I looked right at him, and I'll never forget it, and I said, well, I'm worth that and a lot more, Mr. Stinson. And he just leaned back in his rocking chair, and he said, that's what I wanted to know. <laughs> well, we tri my tw I have a twin, and we tried several different things, but we, w we were so small that we were turned down, so we needed to work, so I, we... I worked in there when I was in high school, you know, to make money, but I said, when I get out of high school, that's it. But, and I went and was in the any for a little while, and then I said, well, I got married, and I said, it's time I went out and made a earnings, you know, so I left the job I was on and went in the canneries and been there ever since. First experience I had packing fish, it was up to Snow's, the little, fa it was just a little small factory, and they had a lady that, you know, you had to check out your age and your birth and every, when you were born. She came in, and my twin sister and I was at the table paying. She said, you girls must leave the table because you are not old enough to work. And we said, well, yeah, and I wouldn't say a word, but my twin sister said, well, we yeah. are, and they got our birth certificate upstairs in the office. She made us go away from the table and go right up and verify it. Oh, we, don't, we used to only work from uh, the fish. Were, they didn't get too many sardines like in the spring until sometime maybe it was June or July before they really started. And then they'd start in and they'd go right through. And the factory used to only run till from uh, when the sardines started running in the spring, summer, until September or so, and we'd be done for the winter. We never worked winters. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and my co-production partner today, Camden Hunt, Jr. at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor. Our show today traces the voices of the sardine industry from sea to can through archival interviews captured in the early 20-teens. Today's show was pre-recorded, so we'll not be taking any calls today. In this final section, you will hear from Arlene Hartford from Goldsboro, 73 at the time of interviewing, Pete Hartford from Goldsboro at 76, Susan Knight Calder from Whiting at 84, Willard and Peter Coulson from Southwest Harbor at 88 and 56, Leela Anderson from Korea at 80, Diana Young from Prospect Harbor at 66, Murtis Harrington from Steuben at 80, Robert Dyer from Chubigue Island at 82, Clau Genthner from Demariscotta at 75, and Al West from Steuben, 62 at the time of interviewing. We continue with the history and culture of sardine canneries, moving into stories from the canneries, and finally into thought and reflection around the end of sardine canning in Maine. We always went in same time in the morning. Are they called on, on call? They would call us what time if the fish didn't get in like until nine o'clock in the morning they would call us and tell us what time the fish was going to be in they kept us up to date they didn't want to lose us they wanted us to come in <laughs> uh, we're going to work at nine o'clock or ten o'clock something like that so that's how we knew they would they would blow the whistle in there and the ones out here, they'd call P 
people, and then they would pass the word around, and we'd get right ready and and, and go go right down. They had a they had a, a, a big well, I'd call it a bus. It come out and got us. But when my mother worked in the factory, they used to have a pickup, and the women would get on the back of the pickup, rain or shine, and go to work. So. Uh Sometimes we'd, if it happened in the middle of the night that we brought a boat in, then we'd call them sometimes in the middle of the night to get them ready for the morning. And uh, they were always ready. Especially the older people that had been used to working all their lives. It didn't matter whether it was snowing or a bad day, big day, good day, or whatever it was, they were ready to go and happy to be there. The younger ones were a little bit more reluctant to do that. But as time went on, I, we always had enough people to do our work for us when, I, when we needed it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it when they started working like uh, 6.30 in the morning till 3 in the day, you know, during the day. I liked it then. Once in a while we'd work over, like I said, if we wanted a long weekend and we knew we had a few too many fish on a Friday, We'd say, let's do them all up, even if we had to stay there. Some nights we were there till 6 o'clock. But we'd finish them all up so we could have the long weekend. The Stinson bus came and picked up the ladies at various locations, and they came in those days with a fresh product that they stayed and packed and produced until the whistle blew that they were done. There was no uh, minimum hours of working in those days. You earned your living by a piecework uh, salary, and the more that one did, the more pay one got. But there was a family sense of everyone from the first worker that appeared in the morning to the last cleanup person at night. Everybody knew everybody and I thought that was really unique that uh, uh, nobody had any hidden secrets in, in the factory and that was fun. I said I used to really give it to it. It's fun though, it's fun. It, it, was, it was. I think we had more fun though in the old days. I think we raised more devil. Oh, we get each other going. Oh gosh, they'd do some awful colour, play some awful tricks on each other. Oh, we had we had a fellow that he uh, I know what did he do? We used to fill his dinner pail up with nails and everything. We'd fill his dinner pail up with nails and stuff we'd find. We'd do Charlie Westcott was his name. He was a nice fella. We'd put stuff in his lunch pail. He was a nice old fellow. And he'd do things to us. So we'd do things. We'd take his lunch, put stuff in the place of his lunch. I know they... That wasn't with the night watchman or something, was it? They stole his boots one time. He went to sleep on a job and they took his boots. One guy, there was one guy down there, I, I didn't see it, but he had his... to take his lunch and hold up work with him and had metal lunchbox and one of them old metal lunchboxes they used to have and uh, somebody took his food out and nailed his bucket to the floor <laughs> he, he never used to stop when he grabbed 
grabbed his lunchbox. He grabbed that lunchbox like that, and my handle took off, and he only had just a handle. <laughs> it nailed up right before. I remember one night my aunt, she went to where the bus come along, and I got on the bus, and there she was sitting with a nightcap on. They wore them cotton hats in them days, uh, starched cap hats. And she had a nightdress on and a chamber mug. She had that, and she took it right down to the factory. It was in nightdress because it was so late we was going to work. She said, well, I might as well take all my stuff right with me. Oh, Nancy Harrington, some of us were another pack open. We worked out in a place on the end of the the line that was called Russian, Russia. They called that end of the factory Russia. And the main factory was maybe It wasn't, that was just the name they give for that room. And he worked out there. And they, oh, he'd get him. Because they used to burn coal then. I don't know, I never did find out why they called that Russia. So many packers was out there. I never, I never worked out there. I always worked out in the main, main factory. Mm-hmm. Oh, some of the girls did some awful things to their bosses. My sister worked there too. My oldest sister, she and another friend, they took the boss down. Pearly McNutty's name was, and they nailed his necktie to the floor. Came right down, nailed it. That that girl was, came off. She was, she, that was before I went there. She was a big, tall, skinny girl, and she, I mean, she was fast, too. But I didn't work there then. Nailed his neck tight to the floor. Said, you girls will pay for this, but he never did nothing to him. But I was, I did pack under him. I didn't have very many bosses. I had nice bosses. One of our <laughs> foremen had an advancement. And <laughs> he figured, I guess, that if he gone up a little higher, he could wear a necktie. So he did. He came to work this morning all dressed up with his necktie. One one of the women took him down on the middle of the floor and nailed his necktie to the floor. <laughs> and he couldn't get up. <laughs> and it was a little bit embarrassing for a man who's supposed to be right in charge of everything. Yes, that was one of our bosses. That was my first boss upstairs. Probably might not. <laughs> my, well, it was, um, my cousin's wife. We had to go to work quite late in the afternoon. And he had his necktie on and everything. She, well, he, she was related to him somehow. Anyway, she came down the phone and nailed his tie right there. He says, Kay, you let me out of here. She said, all right. She took a scissors and cut tie. Oh, they'd done funny tricks. On that, we used to put mustard, mustard in some of them. And we'd send a truck down to the mustard factory, and the mustard came in big barrels, wooden barrels, wooden heads on them. And we'd probably have two or three truckloads of them in storage in one room. And I had a little problem electrically on the further end of that room, and so the electrician decided that he would go over and fix that. He started walking across the heads of those barrels, and one of them went go, and he went into the barrel of mustard. And he come out and looked like a hot dog. But he was very, I tried to laugh at that, but he didn't see any humor. He didn't even like to talk about it anymore. (laughs) Some of the ladies were very salty in their humor. And uh, some of the younger men, especially uh, sons of the owners or son-in-laws, had uh, quite a challenge to overcome with 120 ladies. 
and uh, that was quite funny really because uh, the younger people did not know how to take that kind of uh, ribbing which was to say the least on the very body side <laughs> and there was another time when a young person had a fishtail slapped to his forehead was told that that was the first piece of tail he would receive and uh, that type of humor uh, was very uh, much on display and through all of that working with the folks especially the women downstairs I grew so to admire their work ethics their uh, family interest and uh, most of all their um, duty to the uh, company and to their loyalty not only was it just a place to make money there was something beyond that in today's world people don't even understand slow by one by one by one they closed well, I'll tell you really what people believe. They never used to. They never used to fit, uh, run it in the winter. And once they st Eastport broke the rules and started working winters, and that started it going. And I think otherwise they they would still been working. I, I, until the first day they struck, and then when they struck, that was the end of the sardine business. It ruined it completely, and that's when we started getting out of it. And, uh, uh, in fact, I worked in the Alma Sardine Factory down here all winter cooking herring, and Ralph's father run it, and, and uh, I thought, boy, this is great, having work all winter, but I didn't know how to destroy in the business. They was up all the olive shoals, catching, you know, first head in the wintertime, and shipping them to Yama, and we'd cook them, and then they'd pack, pack them, you know, and, or they'd cut them into cans, and I'd put the cans in the cooker and cook them. And I thought, boy, this is great being able to work all winter. But the only thing is, I didn't realize I was ruining the sardine business because we'd, pa we'd pack it there and they were able to catch with the first thing. See? And, and I didn't realize that. I was too young to, to realize that I was actually ruining the business. Well, I think it had some to do with it. But, uh, I mean, uh, the economy and the way people today, I don't know, they, just to want to work. I mean, there's plenty of work around if people want to work. They can find jobs. But uh, it was hard to sometimes get a crew because, uh, I mean, you go days. I've One week we was fishing off of uh, Gloucester out on the uh, Jeffries Bank, Jeffries, and uh, a week... We would sail out there, and there'd be miles of fish on bottom. We'd stay there practically all night watching them because we figured they'd come up. For one solid week, they never came. It looked just like the bottom had come up from the ocean. There was 30 fathom of solid fish for miles. After that, we fished on them for probably a month. Then they started breaking up and moving south because it was getting late in the fall. They uh, would work down towards uh, the Cape and 
over around to the uh, other side of the Cape. Because partly why they closed this factory down here was because the government got in there and they wouldn't let them catch only just so many herring, that's all there was to it. Simple as that. And you, you can't, they, they said they couldn't operate on the amount of herring that we was getting, that, that, that they could have, you see what I mean? So, but whether that was, I don't know. I don't know. I, don't know. I think uh, sardines were fairly acceptable food back in the 50s, early 60s. Then in, after that, it became more of a lunchbox commodity, with the exception of some of the South American countries. Um, and then in the 80s, it's still a lunchbox commodity, but it's more of the baby boomers and the older folks that will still enjoy a can of sardines and more of the younger people saying, ew, what's that smell? Um, which is a shame because I always felt sardines never got the type of hype in advertising they really should have because sardines are one of the richest sources of omega-3 and one of the healthiest things that you can actually eat. And there's just never been anyone out there pushing this fact touting the fact that, hey, this is one of the best health foods you can eat. and But it's just a smelly old can of fish as, as far as most people are concerned. They buy them in the store, but because we, we was allowed a couple cans a day. We could, we could go out in the casing room and get us. And they had a big table out there. They'd put ones that, because they weren't allowed to pack certain dents in, in the round of wet seals. If they if the ones that cased up didn't see if there was anything wrong with them, they had to put them aside. They'd put them on a table so us packers would have some at night. There was a lot to it. There, there was a lot to that sardine plant. No, I just think it's hard to capture a past, and I think it's difficult to try to verbally explain it. And I'm sure it's the same whether it was in the garment industry or whether it was in the automotive industry. Or I think that same type, whether you do sardines, whether you do food, whether you do a manufactured product, I, I think it's a thing of the past. But those are all very personal comments. <laughs> Even though capturing a past can be incredibly difficult, the ability to hear the lived experience of those who spent their lives in the sardine industry is invaluable. Maine is chock full of history, bolstered by stories of people whose lives are tied to the land and sea. The sardine industry was full of kind, hardworking people, and we are incredibly lucky to be able to access and listen to their stories. This show would not have been possible without extensive help from many. I would like to thank Natalie Springle for constant help and creative support, as well as the NOAA Voices Archives and Oral History and Folklife Research, Inc. for the audio. I would also like to thank Galen Koch, Molly Graham, Hannah Robbins, and Ella Keegan for production support. If these stories whet your appetite and you want to hear full interviews or learn more about the collection, links to the original audio files and the archives that house them can all be accessed via the Coastal Conversations page on the Maine Sea Grant website. 
cgrant.umaine.edu. If you want to hear this show again, especially with headphones, go to weru.org and find the August 28, 2020 Coastal Conversations show in the Public Affairs Archives. Before we sign off, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, your regular Coastal Conversations host. And I just wanted to pop back on today to extend a heartfelt thank you to Camden Hunt, whose voice you were just hearing. Camden gets all the credit for the production of this show, from archival research to narrative development and audio production. Most of all, Camden, thanks for your passion and creativity. You've helped bring an important part of Maine's fisheries heritage to life for all our listeners. If you liked what you heard today on Coastal Conversations, please consider supporting the station during this week's pledge drive. You can pledge online at weru.org or by mail by sending a check to WERU P.O. Box 170, East Orland, Maine, 04431. And thank you. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. And we also encourage you to listen to our sister program, Talk of the Towns, with host Ron Beard from 4 to 5 on the second Wednesday of each month. The Coastal Conversations theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.